Thank you, guys. Took us back to our Baptist roots, didn't they? Thank you, guys. We may do things a little differently this morning. Um, I may actually accelerate through the sermon, put the pedal to the metal, as it were, because um, what I want to do is, is maybe, maybe we'll do this. We'll open it up for some questions at the end. Because this, this I, I, I'm, I'm sure that this is not a passage that you have spent a lot of time on. And, but, but it's so important. It's, it's, it's really, really important. Just like all the Bible's important, this passage in Genesis 14 is really important. And I, and I want to make sure that you get it. Okay, so it's possible that we'll have some questions at the end. All right, so if you have a question, write it down or, or try to remember it and, and, and bring it up at the end. And when you do, understand that, that we're all at different places in our understanding of the Bible. So ask questions that clarify things, not things that not questions that create all kinds of controversies or that sort of thing, but questions that clarify. All right? That's what we're looking for. All right, God, God, God is so interested in, in, in what kind of people we are. He, he's, he's, he's really, 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 really interested and, and invested. God is invested in making us the, the people that he created us to be. It, it's when, it, when it started with, with Adam, Adam's, Adam and Eve, their, their issue was, was the word that we used was their autonomy. They, they wanted to rule themselves. And, and so instead of doing what God asked them to do, or actually it was, it was more negative, they, they, they did what he forbade, what, he, what was forbidden they took. They, they in doing that, they turned their back on God. And that's not why he created us. He, he didn't create us to, to disobey. He didn't create us to, to live independently of him. He, he created us in such a way that we would depend on him. And then, and then because of Adam and Eve, there was a curse and the fallenness and the brokenness of, of, of this life. And so God raised up Noah. It's kind of a second Adam. Noah was kind of a second Adam. And, 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 because of the, and, and because of the fallenness of the world and because of the, of the sin and the curse, God destroyed the world, but he preserved Adam, or Noah. Hoping that, 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 that Noah would, 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 would be different than Adam. But he wasn't. And so all of that led to the Tower of Babel. And that, that, that old thing called autonomy showed up. And remember, we talked about autonomy. It's self-rule. That's what it means, self-law. It means I, I just want to call the shots in my life. I know better than you, God, what I need, what I want, what I long for. I know better than you, so I'll take over, Lord. And you just become a spectator. Well, that's not why God created us. He didn't create us for that purpose. So it didn't work out with Noah. So God, in, in His grace, because he is, his, his grace is infinite. And infinite means that it has no, that it, that it has no measure. It's immeasurable. It's, it's, you, can't, you, you, could, you could start now, and you could spend the next six weeks trying to figure out how gracious God is, and you wouldn't even begin, you wouldn't even scratch the surface of how gracious He is. Then you could extend that out to, to six months and, and, and six years and 6,000 years and six million years, and we'd never completely understand how gracious God is. So He graciously intervened, and He made a fresh start. And that fresh start was with Abram. 
And he said to Abram this. He said, Abram, I want you to leave your situation and I want you to go to a land that I'll show you. In that land, I'll bless you. And I'll make you a blessing. You will be the one through whom I reverse the curse. And I will make you into a great nation that will live on that land. And that land, of course, is another Eden. Or it's supposed to be. That was the point. The point was to create Eden in that land. And Abram would be the next Adam, and maybe he'd get it right. And then God would bless Abram, and through Abram, he would bless the entire world. Well, it didn't work out that way, because Abram had his issues as well. But we talked about this. Our disobedience, our failure, doesn't stop God. We can't stop God from doing what God wants to do. And He wants to save us. And He wants us to, cre- he wants to create, He wants to recreate us in His image and likeness. He wants us to be responsive people, people who respond to Him. People, not, not people who act independently of Him, not people who are self-sufficient, but people who trust Him. And so even though Abram failed on a, on, on a few accounts, he, he, he failed, he, remember he lied about his wife, and, and, and Abram didn't prove to be perfect, God still determined to use him. To use him as an example. To use him as a source of blessing because it was through, it was through Abram that the land would, 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 would have descendants who would, who would eventually occupy the land. And it was through Abram, even though Sarah was barren when he first made the promise, it was through Abram that he would bring a seed and that seed would culminate in Jesus Christ. And all the blessing that we enjoy as Christians comes from that source. Right? The benefit of, 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 of Abram, of, of course, is, is that, that he, he, is the, he is the ancestor of Jesus Christ. But there's another benefit to studying about Abraham. It's, it's, it's we learn from Abraham's example, both the positive dimensions and the negative dimensions. And in, ver- in chapter 14, there's, there's much positive to learn from Abram about the kind of people that God wants us to be. The kind of people that God wants us to be. Going back to what we said before, that might mean some changes in us, right? Because we're in, a, in this process of growth. So let's look at chapter 14 and, and see what happened in Abram's life that, that, that can benefit, benefit us in our own lives. Now, here's, here's a chapter, like I said, this is a little bit complicated, and, and here's a chapter where, where it's so important to remember the Bible wasn't written to us, it was written for us. Okay? It was not written to us, it was written for us, because some of these people, you're going to scratch your head. Okay? Understand that. In the days of, now it's going to be hard to pronounce some of these names. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar. Now, let, let me locate these people for you so you understand. Okay, God said to Abram, go into this land. When he got to the land, a couple of things happened. A couple of obstacles came up. The first obstacle was the land was occupied. Then there was a famine. And so God, God didn't remove the obstacles from Abram's life. He helped him through the obstacles in his life, okay? Here's another obstacle in the life of Abraham and in the life of, uh, his life of realizing the promise. In the days of Amraphel, 
king of Shinar, that's to the north, that's Mesopotamia, Ariok, king of Elassar, Chedar, Chedor, Laomer, king of Elam, Tidel, king of Goyim. Anybody want to take over for me here? No? Okay. These kings, these kings, these Mesopotamian kings made war with kings who were in the vicinity of and actually in Canaan, the promised land. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom. Now we know about Sodom, that that was a wicked place. Bersha, king of Gomorrah. Shinab, king of Adma. Shemember, king of Zeboim. And the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. So this coalition of Canaanite kings all came together in the valley of Sidim. Twelve years, they served the kings of the north. They served Jedar Leomer. But in the thirteenth year, they rebelled. In other words, what they did was these northern kings, these northern powerful kings, who were actually not, not kings in, a, in, in the sense that we think of the king and the queen of England, okay, not those kinds. They were, they were kings of city-states, which, which would mean that they were like the king of Los Angeles in its vicinity, the king of Wasco in its vicinity, city-states, kings of city-states, not with massive armies, but with, with several hundred. And these kings would come from the north, from Mesopotamia, and they would, they would, they would raid, and they would pillage. And they would take spoil. And they would control and manipulate. And so these Canaanite kings were, were, were their... their the, the word is vassal. They were their vassals. They were their servants. They were essentially their, their slaves. And they owed the kings of the north tribute. And when the kings of, of Canaan stopped paying the tribute, the kings of the north said it's time to make a visit. In the 14th year, Chedar Leomer, who was maybe the the studliest of the kings, the leader, and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Raphaim and Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Sheva, oh, this one's a hard one, Sheva, Kiriathayam, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned and came back and came to in Mishpat that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Harazan commerce. So let me, let me, let me, try, to, let me try to give you a, a, a visual of this. You have, these, you have these northern kings of these city-states and they, 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 they've, they've, they've allied themselves together so that there are, there are four of these kings and, 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 and they're moving from the north from the area of Mesopotamia, and they're coming to, to the area of Canaan because the Canaanite kings, whom they've subjugated, have stopped paying tribute. And if you cut off those, the, those resources, that, that creates a, a sense of urgency on the part of the northern kings to go get what they believe is theirs. So they come down from the north, and they decide they're going to go from the north all the way to the south. And what they're going to do along the way is they're going to raid. And they're going to, they're, going to, they're going to take what they want from people. They're going to accumulate. That's what they're going to do. They're going to ravage people. Now they came because of these kings who rebelled. But it wasn't enough for them. They had to ravage the whole land. Okay, you get the picture? You get what's happening here? 
So far, Abram has experienced famine. He's experienced the occupation of the land that God promised to him. And so he can't just say, this is my land, because there are already people there. Go into your favorite house in Wasco that's not your own and say, this is my house. Okay, I'm going to dial 911 now. It was an occupied land. There was famine in the land. Obstacles. Now, now, there's this international conflict. There's war. In the promised land. And praise the Lord, I only have to read these names a few more times. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, those aren't too bad, that is Zohar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sedim. And they were going to, they were going to fight for what was theirs against this powerful king and his, and his alliance. Four kings against five. Cherar, Leomer, Tidal, Amraphel, Arioch, four kings against five. Verse 10. Now the valley of Sedim was full of bitumen pits or tar pits. And as the king, kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, they experienced defeat. Some fell into, into them, into these pits, into these pits dug out for the tar. And the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy, these five kings, these five tyrants, took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions, and they went their way. And they made one strategic mistake. They took Lot. Remember what happened with Lot? In chapter 13, Lot, his, his flocks and his herds and his possessions became so great, and Abraham's were great, and they had to separate. And, and Abraham said to Abraham, Abraham because, because God's working in his life, and he's, and, he's, and he's becoming a very generous man, very magnanimous man, Abraham says, choose. You go one way, I'll go the other way. We don't want this conflict. We don't want our herdsmen, we don't want our shepherds to be in conflict. You go one way, I'll go the other way. Lot looked up and he saw these lush fields. And they just happened to be near Sodom. And the Bible says, the king and the people of Sodom were very, very wicked. So Lot gets caught up in this. All right? So they took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and all his possessions, and they went their way. Verse 13, someone had escaped. Someone had escaped. This is a theme in the Bible. The escapee. The unnamed fugitive. The person who comes and, 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 and relates pertinent information to the people who are involved. It's a hand of God. Someone who escapes, who knows that, that Lot belongs to Abram. And so this escapee comes and he says to Abram, the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Anar, these were allies of Abram. 
When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So, so understand this, okay? This is a long way. And so Abram is in pursuit of these people for a long, long way, for many, many miles. He's in pursuit. And Dan is in the farthest reaches of the northern part of the, of the, of the promised land. And Abraham's chasing, chasing these kings who have his nephew. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Verse 16. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Now, a couple of things I want you to notice here. First of all, when the fugitive comes to Abraham, Abraham's sitting under an oak tree. He's dwelling in the promised land. He's made some friends. And they're his allies. And it's a picture of peace. The man comes and says, they've taken your nephew, they've taken your brother. And like we talked about last week, Abraham, because he's becoming the man that God wanted him to be, he's, he understands that he is his brother's keeper. That he is responsible for Lot. That he has an obligation to take care of his own. That's really, really important. Let me tell you, listen to this. There's a time to fight. There's a time to fight. There is a time to fight. Now, we're not talking about North Korea here. We're not talking about Guam. We're not talking about that sort of thing. We're talking about there's a time to fight for those who are our brothers and our sisters. And you are my brothers and my sisters. And there is a time to fight. Now, does that mean if you come to this, to this local service on a Sunday morning and say, somebody's been picking on me, do you actually want me to go and take care of that for you? Well, maybe in some circumstances that might be appropriate, but no, that's not exactly what we're talking about here. Fighting in the New Testament can take many forms. But the most important, way that we fight for our brothers and sisters in Christ is by praying for them and engaging according to Ephesians 6 and in, 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 in we engage in this, in this warfare that Paul calls spiritual warfare that Paul calls prayer. In Abraham's case, it was literal warfare. Literal warfare, fighting on behalf of his neighbor, of his brother, and fighting with his neighbors. After his return from the defeat of Chedar Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. In verse 18, this is the most... It's, th th it's not controversial, it's just curious. One of the most curious passages in all the Bible. I mean, in other words, you could, you could read from chapter or verse 17 and then pick it up again in verse 21 and it would make perfect sense. 
but you have this most unusual intervention. Now remember, remember this. Abram's been promised a land. He's been promised this territory. Now there are different, there are different ways to possess territory. But one of the, one, what is one of the most prominent ways, the most common ways to possess territory? If someone is occupying territory and you want to possess territory, how do you do it? Well, you can pay for it, right? You can you find a real estate agent and offer him some money. Or you can go to war. And Abram's proven to be pretty potent. I mean, he's taken on some pretty powerful dudes and defeated them utterly. There's a time to fight. There's a time to let God fight. There's a time to fight. There's a time to let God fight. And this king that we call Melchizedek comes along to remind Abram that in terms of occupying this territory, in terms of, this, of, of, of the promises of God that are going to materialize for Abram and his descendants. This is God's battle. You see, at this point, Abram could become, could become one of them. You know, kind of this guy that, that, that rides around with his army behind him, just, just pillaging people, taking what doesn't really belong to him. Because after all, he can. But is that the kind of person that God wants us to be? Is that the kind of person that, 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 that God is, 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 is creating in us? And of us? No. Melchizedek comes along. And Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness. King of Salem, which means king of peace. Which would later become Jerusalem. He brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. A king and a priest. And he blessed Abram and he said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Now this is, this is absolutely astounding. Because here's a Canaanite king, a Canaanite king who knows the true God. And he comes to Abram and reminds him, Abram, you're blessed of God. You're blessed of God. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. It's almost as if Melchizedek is saying, don't ever get the impression, Abram, that you did this on your own. This was God at work. Don't you ever get the impression that this was on your own. And Abram, again, astoundingly gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom came, the wicked king, and said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Did you notice there that Abram was a restorer of families <laughs> that God used him to bring families back together who are ripped apart by these tyrants 
Take the persons, but t- uh, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, the wicked king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God, most high possessor of heaven and earth. He repeats the words of Melchizedek that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Then Anner, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. So you see, do, do you see what's happening? Here's, here's the beginning of the question, okay? Do you see what's happening here? Abraham, I, w- I want you to be a, a certain kind of person. I, I don't want you to be like Chedor Laomer, Laomer, Chedor Laomer. I don't want you to be like those Mesopotamian kings. I don't want you to be that way. When you went to fight, that was appropriate. That was appropriate. That was just war. Are you familiar with that term, just war? You guys, help me out here. Are you familiar with that term, just war? Just war is a, just war is this. Just war is exactly how it sounds. It's a justified conflict. In other words, it it works something like this. Under certain conditions, military force is necessary. When you have, when you have a madman killing millions of people, a megalomaniac who wants to take over the world, a fascist who wants a totalitarian government, then just war is appropriate. You have to fight him. That's why there was World War II. That was a just war. To topple a totalitarian regime who was intent on making us speak German. You understand? Just war. There are times when, when military efforts are, 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 are necessary in order to preserve, in order to preserve order in, in, in chaos. And this was just war. But God didn't create us to wage war. He created us to live to live out an alternative. See, Hitler was the embodiment of, of hate. God wants us to be the embodiment of love. And what that means is that we love those who aren't like us. See, you can, you're not the embodiment of love if you only love those who are like you. You are the embodiment of love if you love those who are different than you, as well as those who are like you. You see? You tracking with me here? Are you? Okay. So there's just war. But war is not intended to be a lifestyle. That kind of conflict is not intended to be a lifestyle. See, Abram was doing the right thing when he was sitting under those oak trees. When he was sitting under those oak trees and waiting on God to fulfill the promise, he was doing the right thing. And as you get to chapter 18 and you see Abram there in his tent and God comes and and Abram is able to express this kind of hospitality to God. Because he's living at peace. That's a wonderful thing. That's what God wants. He wants us to be at peace. Peace. 
And then in chapter 19, he comes to Lot, who's still in Sodom and Gomorrah. And what's God find? He finds nothing but chaos. And God doesn't want chaos. He wants us to live at peace, but sometimes we have to fight to get the peace. But not very often. Most of the time, we let God fight for us. Remember Jericho? Who fought the battle of Jericho? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, 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 Joshua. No, he didn't. All he did was march. Who fought the battle of Jericho? God fought the battle of Jericho. Right? Melchizedek comes, intervenes, comes into, walks into the situation, provides nourishment and refreshment for a battle-weary warrior and his people. Melchizedek comes. His name means king of righteousness, king of peace. The opposite of the king of Sodom. He's to be seen in contrast to the king of Sodom. He comes and he blesses Abram and reminds Abram that this is, <coughs> this is all about God and what God has promised Abram. And it says this, that Melchizedek was a king who was a priest. And there's the start. Right there's the start. Now, this will help you in your Bible study. This will help you understand God better, help you understand yourself better, help you understand the world better, help you understand everything better. There's the start of one of the most important trajectories in all the Bible. Because Jesus came and he was a king. Was Jesus a king like Chedor Laomer? He was king of peace, king of righteousness. When Jesus came to the promised land, who was in charge? Tell me. When Jesus came to the promised land, now, by the way, we all understand, right, that the promised land belongs to Jesus along with the rest of the globe. Who was in charge of the promised land when Jesus came? Who? The Romans were, right? Why didn't Jesus declare war on the Romans and take what was rightfully his? Why don't you see Jesus? Well, that's coming. We're not there yet. Because he's a king in the order of Melchizedek. King of peace. King of righteousness. Priest king. What does that mean? Well, not only is he a benevolent king, which means that he is, he, he is all about us and our well-being. That's what it means to be, to be a benevolent king, a, a, a king who's not like other kings who are more interested in themselves and in expanding their territories and enriching themselves. Jesus has never been about that. And he doesn't want us to be about that either. Jesus was a priest king, which means that he could make sacrifices. You see, the reason that Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek is because he couldn't be in the order of Levi because Levi, Levites couldn't be kings. 
and kings couldn't be priests in Israel. But Jesus isn't a Levite king. He's a, he's a king from Judah. He's a king who can be a priest. He's a king who can go to war for us. And how does Jesus go to war for us? What was his greatest battle? Where was the greatest battlefield? Where was the arena in which Jesus fought the greatest battle that's ever been fought? What was the arena? Where was it at? It started in Gethsemane. It ended on a cross. But it didn't end there. <laughs> it, it eventually was an empty tomb. And so this priest made a sacrifice. This king who was a priest made a sacrifice. He went to war and he became the wounded warrior, not just a wounded warrior but the brutalized warrior who was killed on our behalf. Now what kind of person does it take to do that? It's certainly not the kind who, who comes up to Jill and says, Jill, I want what you have. Give it to me. I'm taking it. Because I can. By the way, I know I can't, but it's an example. You see, Jesus, you understand this? You understand what's happening here? It, this is the beginning of, 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 this chapter 14 in Genesis is the beginning of what we're going to find in Jesus. Someone who, a, a king who, who fights for us, a king who fights for us in a certain way. Do you understand that? He fights for us by dying for us. He fights for us by sacrificing for us. And that's the way we ought to be fighting. Let's leave, let's, please, let's leave Guam, North Korea, and whatever other battles that, 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 that are going to be fought, that, that might be fought, let's leave those to the people involved. We have, we have a battle to fight right here. It, it's a battle of dying to ourselves and living for others. It's a battle of, of being good and being sacrificial. I hope that makes sense. Do you have any questions? No? Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we, we 